Judges chapter 10 is where we will be today as we continue to move through this book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. There's a children's song that you may or may not be familiar with. It talks about a little red wagon. It goes something like this, you can't ride my little red wagon, the front seat is broken, the axle's dragging. Lyrics are usually followed by some form of chanting of some kind, and then there's this line, second verse, same as the first, a little bit louder and a little bit worse. And the song repeats itself ad infinitum. Growing up, I confess I did not know this song, but I was familiar with the line, and although it was slightly modified is how I learned it, we learned it as, same song, second verse, a little bit louder and a little bit worse. Same song, third verse, a little bit louder and a little bit worse. Same song, and it would just continue on until people couldn't take it just anymore. It's much like the song that never ends. The song is a favorite of children's, particularly at things like summer camps. The line, a little bit louder and a little bit worse, though, it it really steps up the awful factor. It's one thing just to sing an annoying song on repeat on end, but when that song is also intentionally and progressively growing in its decibel level and wretchedness, things can get ugly in a hurry. In many ways, it seems as though Israel was metaphorically singing a similar song by their actions. As the cycle of the judges wax on, it's, it's not just on repeat, but it's on this downward spiral. Every time the cycle comes around again, things are just as they were before, but they're a little bit louder and a little bit worse. Things seem to come to a bit of a climax in our text here today, we've seen the cycles go around. We've, we've seen sometimes that people do better at some times than others, and there are some decent judges and some poor judges. As we come to this stage in the book, there are very few redeeming qualities in the characters that remain. And in many ways, the accounts that follow are just downright depressing. It would be easy for us to get weighed down and and dragged down with despair over the things that unfold within the book. And to be fully honest with you, I began feeling the weight of that a few weeks ago as we concluded the, the life of Gideon and with his decline, and especially last week as we saw the life of Abimelech. And what happens when we reject the king of kings, it leads only to destruction. So as we consider where this book is is taking us, this is is a good time to remind ourselves what it is that the author of the book is doing. What is his goal? Well, the author wants us to stare into the face of our own depravity. He wants us to reckon with the blackness of our own hearts. He wants Israel to look into the mirror and see the ugliness of her own sin. He wants us to see these things for a purpose, though. He wants us to to reckon with these things so that we will come to recognize that this is what happens when we forsake the king. 
I've titled the, the name of this series, In Need of a King, and that's, that's what the author wants us to see. The author wants us to know what happens, that when we are not in submission to the King of Kings, this is the results. It was the result in Israel. It was the result in ancient Greece, ancient Rome. It's the result in our modern day in places like Russia, England, Mexico, result in the United States, and it's the result in your heart and in mine when we reject the King. And it's a sad thing. It's a depressing thing, but it's an important thing. And it's an important thing, and here is why. Oftentimes when we talk about making gospel presentations, we, we make note that it's important to share the bad news before we share the good news, right? You are a sinner justly deserving the wrath of God. That's the bad news. That's the reality that we must grapple with. And we talk about it's important to start with the bad news, so, and that's how we can even come to understand the good news in the first place. Good news only makes sense in the context of the bad news. Just like a doctor announcing a cure for your disease will confuse you if you don't haven't first been confronted with the reality that you have a disease. Well, the book of Judges is essentially the bad news. But bad news left alone doesn't do us any good. It will, we will only drown ourselves in self-pity and sorrow if we just dwell upon the bad news and the bad news only. And we must show how the good news addresses what ails Israel. And the good news addresses what ails our own sinful condition. And it is an acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is the King, and we must come to Him by faith. Now, all of that is introduction, not only for this week, but also the weeks ahead as we continue to move through the cycles of the judges and as things really are going to come to a, a zenith at the end of the, of the depravity that is going to exist in the land. We must reckon with the reality of sin, the depravity of our own hearts, but we need not wallow in it. We must see it. We must allow that to drive us straight to the cross of Christ. He is the only solution. He is the only balm for our aching hearts. He is the only one that can make this dead man live. So with that, let's turn to Judges chapter 10. Judges chapter 10, where we will see today that mere human effort is insufficient to save us, as we will observe two insufficient means to secure the land. Two insufficient means to secure the land, the first to the insufficiency of raw influence. Judges chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. After Abimelech there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he lived at Shamir in the, land, in the hill country of Ephraim. 
and he judged Israel 23 years. And he died and was buried in Shemer. After him rose Jer, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havoth-Jer to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jer died and was buried in Cammon. Here we have two brief accounts of two judges, Tola and Jer. And really, these judges, they really set the stage for what's about to come in the, in the passage that follows. We know very little about these men. It really seems as though their role in the book of Judges is to not only bridge us over from Abimelech into, the, into Jephthah and set the stage for that, but there are details within the midst of this that, that really ought to make our ears perk up a little bit. Tola is the only judge for whom we know his lineage beyond his father. We know his father's name and we know his grandfather's name. That is not true for anyone else in the book of Judges. This detail gives us a clue that Tola is from an influential family and was likely an influential individual himself. Well, he dies and is succeeded by Jer. Jer is a Gileadite who had 30 sons and rode on 30 donkeys. Well, that's an interesting detail, right? A lot of children, in order to have this progeny, he would have had to have been a very wealthy man, likely with several wives. The Hebrew text emphasizes the detail about them having 30 cities. These were wealthy and influential individuals. Not only did Jer have wealth, but his sons seemed to have a great deal of wealth and influence as well. But notice what is missing. As we've seen different judges, as it's talked about their, what God did, God raised up the judge, and, and they, they judged Israel so many years, and then the land had rest for so many years. Well, those are things that we don't find here. There's nothing about the land having rest. There's no statement about God establishing these leaders. In fact, from the narrator's point of view, it seems that these, these leaders have arisen just by mere human means. They lived, they rose, they judged, and they died. For all their influence, for all their wealth, they were unable to keep Israel from chasing after false idols, as we will see in the passage that follows. They were insufficient for what was needed. Titled this heading, the sec- the, this section, The Insufficiency of Raw Influence. Of course, influence itself is not a negative thing. We, are, we all have influence to some degree or another on others. They're, we are all influenced by others. But raw influence... Raw influence that is not governed or directed by the Lord is both dangerous and insufficient. To the degree that God grants us influence in another person's life, we ought to seek to use that influence for God's glory by directing others to the Lord and to His Word. And there is no indication in this text that the judges did that. They had wealth. They had influence. They had 30 sons who were over 30 cities. Notable family lineage. And 
And yet we find Israel once again mired in rampant sin and idolatry in verse 6. Read with me the Judges 10 verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. They forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. This is the most devastating statement of the idolatry of Israel in the entire book. In most other places where it describes their idolatry, it speaks of them serving the Baals and the Astros. Well, well here it, it just heaps and stacks up the reality that, that these are not just serving the Baals and the Astros, they're serving the gods of, of all of these foreign peoples, all these Canaanites. The point is pressed home like it has not before in this book. They went after the gods of Sidon, Moab, Ammon, the Philistines. They forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. A complete and utter rejection of their king and a total embracing of seemingly every god but their own. And as a result, God, Lord's, the Lord God sends judgment upon them just as He has before, in verse 7, it says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. Many striking words here. A total and utter apostasy by the people leads to a level of judgment that we've not seen before in this book. Yes, there have been judgments that's been brought against the people from the from the people surrounding that God has brought against them, but but things are just brought to a whole other level here. The words that are used here, it says the Philistines and the Amorites crushed and oppressed the people. The word used for crush there could also be translated as shattered. The only other time this is used in the whole Old Testament, speaking of the nation of Egypt, when God shattered Egypt, when He destroyed the army in the, in the Red Sea. That's the level of destruction that we are speaking of. The word for, that is translated in the ESV as oppressed, could also be translated as crushed. And the only other time that is used in the book of Judges is when the millstone was dropped on Abimelech's head and it crushed his skull. So this is what Israel is enduring. They're being shattered. They're being crushed. And the text says they are severely distressed. Verse 8 says, For 18 years they oppressed the people. And the, the Hebrew emphasizes that phrase. It's for 18 years. They endured this for a long time under an oppressive regime. Well, they grow tired under the judgment of God. And notice now that they come to God seeking, seeking God's help. They, they come before Him seemingly repentant. 
But we saw that, that raw influence was insufficient for the people because despite the, the judges that were before, they are still in this, this place of idolatry. Now we see the insufficiency of insincere religion. The insufficiency of insincere religion. Verse 10, And the people cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Moanites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. The people seem to come to God in repentance, but the response of God, I believe, reveals that He knew what was truly in their hearts. Their plea was apparently an insincere plea, and God's response is both scathing and devastating. I have saved you time and time again. We've gone round and round on this. Yet each time you go running back to those other gods, you've made your bed. Now sleep in it. Let them save you. If that's the gods that you're choosing, if that's who you want to serve, have at it. Cry out to them and see if they will save you because I will not. passage makes me think of Romans chapter 1 when God is giving people over to their sin. There, there, there comes a point when God has had enough, when He's just done. There's no more. Truly, this is a terrifying reality. Terrifying reality that there are limits to God's grace and His patience. Well, the people, they seem devastated by these words as well. So they, they come before him and they seem to double down on their statement. At Judges chapter 10, verse 15 and 16, and the, the people of Israel said to the Lord, Oh, we have sinned. Well, do whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. And so they put away the foreign gods from among them and, and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. So, all right, we're finally getting somewhere, it seems, right? They're finally doing what they need to do. They're, they're putting away their foreign gods. All right. Finally, positive results. Or are they? These two verses are, are very challenging verses. Scholars debate about what is being communicated here. On the one hand, some think Israel has finally repented and God is responding to their repentance. On the other hand, some believe this is an instance, this is also a, an insincere act on Israel's part as they seek to manipulate the Lord into saving them. And I'm of the persuasion that this latter interpretation is correct, and there are several reasons why this is the case. First, I think it fits the context. Israel has been living in the worst idolatry to date, and they are enduring the worst judgment to date. 
God himself has pointed to the reality that every time he saves them, they just slip back into their patterns of idolatry once again. And it is on that basis that he says, no, I'm done. I will not rescue you. God knows that this people will only go back into idolatry again. Second, every time we have seen God's mercy and His grace, it is always because of His goodness and not because of of the actions of the people. Many times in the book of Judges, God has acted to save His people, but it wasn't because of their piety. It was always because of His mercy. He is not obligated to show mercy. He chooses to do so because He is a merciful God. Third, there is a strong case to be made that verse 16b, which says in the ESV, God became impatient over the misery of Israel, could also be translated as God became impatient over the labor of Israel. The concept of impatience is, is a good translation. The idea is that his soul grew tired, God grew tired of what he saw, that's the idea there. But the word translated as misery in the ESV and Most other English translations also render it that way. But that Hebrew word is most often used to refer to the concept of labor or toil. Now, it's possible that this may refer to their hardship under an oppressive regime, or it might refer to their work of trying to to get God to act. In context, I think that later that latter position is correct. These people are trying to manipulate God into helping them out, and He is growing tired of their actions. He's growing tired of their labor. The passage that immediately follows would seem to indicate that this is the case. Verse 17, the the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped at Gilead, and the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. These are not a people under submission and subjection to their Lord. This is not a people who are seeking out God and bowing in submission to Him. And so for those reasons, I I think in context, I think this is speaking of the Lord's exasperation with the people as they they are trying to manipulate God and say, oh, yes, just save us just this once. You can do whatever you want with us, but just this once will save us. And and here, we'll do all the things you want us to do. We'll put away our foreign gods. Uh, we'll, we'll, We'll do what you want. Maybe we'll do our sacrifices and all these things. And it seemed to be in sincere religion. Now, that's not a hill I'm necessarily going to die on. That's, that's, that's how I read the text. Other, there are very good scholars that take it other ways, and I, I think it's very possible that, that it could be that other way. If this is a statement about the mercy of God that sure, certainly is consistent with the nature and the character of God and how He has acted previously in the book and how He will act again in the future of this book. But for this context, I do take the view that He grows impatient over their efforts that it is a misplaced faith. So often we are are tempted to place our faith in places that it does not belong. 
We might place our faith or trust in human leaders and their influence, like Tola and Jer. But this is insufficient. We might place our faith or trust into, into playing religious games. And this is also insufficient. And if we were truly honest with ourselves, I'm sure we could look into our own lives when, when we have been tempted and have succumbed to some of these things as well. Like, yes, I've, I've sinned here, but just, just rescue me this, this, this one time and whatever happens after that, I will, I'll accept it. But this one time, it saved me. We, we, might, we might try to bargain with God. Oh, I'll go to church. I'll, I'll give money to the church. I'll be baptized. I'll do anything. I just want you to help me out of this situation that I'm in. As if we can manipulate God by our actions and try to, try to get Him to do what we want Him to do. What arrogance it is to think that God could be bought with false religious bribes. It's this kind of attitude that has caused God to say through Isaiah the prophet hundreds of years after the book of Judges. This is what it says in Isaiah chapter 1 Verse 10, and the words are up on the screen for us. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now those, in, in context, God is being a bit, uh, I don't want to say facetious, but he's, it's, these are biting words. He's speaking to Israel, but he's assigning the names of Sodom and Gomorrah to them, showing the depth of their own depravity. Verse 11, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of rams, lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocation, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. It's a concept of weary of bearing them, similar to what we see in Judges. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. The insincere religion is an affront to Almighty God. Insincere religion is an affront to Almighty God. Some, yeah, I've studied that text from Isaiah before, and it, is, it has caused me to reflect. I wonder... I wonder if God would say something similar to, to evangelicals in our churches in America today. If Isaiah the prophet were to live today, would he say something like, I, I hate your singing. I hate your VBSs and your Sunday schools, your tithes and your offerings. It's not because those things are, are, are bad and wrong in themselves. In fact, all the things that Isaiah is, is speaking against in that context, those are all things that the law of God required. The issue was the heart of the people as they were bringing these things to the Lord. 
If our, if our religious activity, if our attendance of church, if our, if our giving of our tithes and our offerings, if our, if our prayer, even if our, our partaking of the Lord's table, if these things do not flow from a heart of faith, if it is insincere religion, it is offensive before Almighty God. If, if we think that we are earning something or manipulating God into doing what we want we have another thing coming. Insincere religion is insufficient. It was insufficient for the people of those days. It is insufficient for us today. But if these things are insufficient, what is sufficient? What is it that we do need Only the cross of Christ. Only the cross of Christ. In this text from Judges, we see another manifestation of the, of the depravity of the human heart in seeking to manipulate God. Jesus Christ paid the price for that sin on the cross. We don't have to try to earn a favor with God. We don't have to try to manipulate God by trying to do certain things to earn His favor. No, that work has been done. It is finished. Christ died on the cross for that. All my righteousness is is filthy rags. I don't have to stand before God in in the standing of my own filthy pseudo-righteousness. But because of what Christ accomplished on the cross... If I accept and receive those things by faith, He gives me the righteousness of Christ. I don't have to try to earn His favor. I don't have to try to earn His activity. But I stand before Him no longer condemned, but as a child of the King. And He receives us. But this requires us to submit to Him in faith. The call of the gospel of Christ is a call of submission. First, we must humbly admit that we are sinners and we cannot save ourselves. We must submit to the work of Christ. No amount of religious manipulation will do. We must humbly ask Him to save us and to make us His own. Then even as we walk out, as even as we live out our, our Christian lives, even as we, we live out our walk with Christ, this requires us to submit in faith, believing that His ways are higher than our ways, that, that His design is for our good and for His glory, and that we don't earn anything by, by doing all of the religious activity that we do that are good things. It is good to be in church. It is good to partake of the Lord's table. It is good to sing praises unto our God. It is good to give of our tithes and our offerings unto the Lord. But these things must flow from a heart of faith, not in a sense of seeking to get God to do what we want Him to do in our lives. These things exist to call us upward and to to cast our eyes of faith onto the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. Playing religious games is insufficient, but Christ's sufficiency pays for that sin as well. 
And though judges shows us the bad news of our own depravity, the gospel is the good news that gives life and shapes us into the image of Christ. So when we are confronted with our own insufficiency, when we look into the mirror of God's Word and see our own insufficiency, pray that that will drive us unto the only sufficient one and His work on the cross, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we are confronted with our own insufficiency, Lord, I do pray that you would keep us from false religion. I pray that you would keep us from playing religious games. I pray that you would keep us from going through motions because, hey, this is what we think we need to do, especially to earn favor with you. Pray that we would rest in the gospel of Christ, rest in what He has accomplished and in Him and Him alone, knowing that You are a merciful God. You are a great and awesome God, and You have given us Your only Son, Jesus Christ. Truly, it was finished upon the cross. There is nothing else that needs to be done because it is finished. May we go to You in faith, and may we live out our lives in faith doing that which you have called us to do, but with hearts purified by faith. We thank you. We praise you for your word. Pray that you would continue to grow us. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you would stand.